0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, Covenantal Cause and Effect, from our audio collection titled Reformed is Not Enough, Volume 3. If you enjoy this talk and you want to hear more, you can find Reformed is Not Enough in three volumes on the Canon Press site as well as Douglas Wilson's book Reformed Is Not Enough found at canonpress.com
1: Amen As we've been considering the objectivity of the covenant we've spoken much of the blessings and curses of the covenant Covenants in a fallen world always have blessings and curses attendant with them This was evident in the Old Testament God made it very uh, plain it was very explicit in the old covenant and because the new covenant is a more spiritual covenant we are told it's of a different nature we considered last week how it's a resurrected covenant the law of god was crucified and rose and rose again from the dead in the lord jesus christ and all all the elements of of the world were transformed by the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ we have learned that the new covenant is different But the problem is that we sometimes distort the nature of that difference. We just just learn from the Scripture that there is a difference, and then having learned that that there's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we just make up the difference that we want it to have, and we import our understanding into it. And we do so on the basis of our own carnal reasonings. There are several examples we can point to. One is that when we learn in the Bible that every covenant including the new covenant has curses that are that are connected to it we learn in the book of Hebrews for example that there are certain people who trample underfoot the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified so the blood of the covenant sets them apart it sanctifies them and yet they turn around and trample it underfoot and and we are told in Hebrews that it's far worse for someone to do that than to have offended against the old covenant in other words the, the chastisements and the curses of the New Covenant are sharper and more severe than the curses of the Old Covenant. But many of us have assumed, well, the New Covenant just has automatic blessings. Everybody is just um, instantaneously, automatically blessed. There's no such thing as a curse in the New Covenant. And then when we learn that there are curses in the New Covenant, we then want to say, well, why doesn't the Bible call it the Covenant of Blessings and Curses 50-50? Well, just because both elements are there does not mean that that is God's intention, that's God's purpose, and that's the direction he's driving it. So, for example, we see in the book of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul refers to the Lord's Supper under the heading of the cup of blessing. He said, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not? He goes on to talk about the cup of blessing. Now, he's writing this to a church where people have gotten sick and have died because of their abuse of the cup of blessing. They've abused the cup of blessing, but Paul doesn't say, and therefore, I'm now going to call it the cup of cursing. He's writing to a church where he says, when you get together to have the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And he says, and he tells these people that when you gather together to eat the Lord's Supper, it does more harm than good. And then he says, and what should we call this supper that is killing some of you, making others sick, doing more harm than good, and is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating? What should we call it? He says, I call it the cup of blessing. That's how he thinks. Now, we want to say, well, that's not strictly speaking accurate, uh, accurate, Paul. You're equivocating. You need to call it the cup of blessing and the cup of cursing. You've You've got to incorporate into the title everything you think about it. Well, that's not God's way. God does not want us to think the way we think it ought to go. God wants us to think the way his word reveals. So God tells us how to speak. God tells us how to think about this covenant, and we should speak that way, and we should let Uh, those who are interested in systematic theology sort it out, and because all reality is ultimately coherent, there are many things that can be sorted out. But we ought not to modify the language that Scripture gives us in order to anticipate every possible objection. This is the covenant of blessing. This is the covenant of salvation. It's the cup of blessing. It's the cup of salvation. It's the gospel of blessing, the gospel of salvation. And that's how we're commanded to speak of it, think about it, and respond to it. We are to to respond to the Word of God as Christians and not as amateur logicians. Another problem that we uh, fall into when we consider blessings and curses is we say, okay, all right. well the New Covenant has blessings and curses and we assume that the world is an inscrutable place and that we just muddle through as best we can and God is going to keep a ledger or a tally up in heaven in some uh, invisible account and He's going to give us blessings, and he's going to give us curses up there. And then, when we finally die and go to be with the Lord, we're going to have a, a reckoning or a settling, and we're going to find out at last what our life was like. Well, the blessings and the curses that God administers begin here; they begin at your baptism you, when when you are incorporated visibly into the visible church God starts dealing with you and he deals with you according to his word and wisdom understands what's going on wisdom seeks to interpret the world around us the word around us the church around us in the light of God's revelation what does God tell us what does God speak to us the assumption that that God does everything but God does everything inscrutably looks humble and it sounds humble but it is ultimately prideful as we will see shortly in the text that we read it says who is he that saith and it cometh to pass when the Lord commandeth it not in other words is there anybody in the world who can say I'm going to make something happen whether or not God has decreed for it to happen is there anyone who can say I'm going to insist that this come to pass when God has not decreed that it will in fact come to pass Amos tells us if evil befalls a city, if calamity befalls a city, hath not the Lord done it? Everything comes from God's hand. And Nebuchadnezzar understood this in, in the book of Daniel when he says, is, is there anybody who can reach up and when God's arm is coming down to strike a nation, can anybody reach up and grab God's hand, grab God's arm and say, What are you doing? What do you think you're doing? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar. The pagan king of Babylon, who came to true faith, knew more about God's nature and sovereignty than many contemporary evangelicals do. He knew that we cannot reach up and stop God's arm and say, what do you think you're doing? And then here in Lamentations, we learn that the opposite, is, uh, the opposite mistake should be avoided as well. Not only can we not stop God in what He is doing, we cannot intrude our own will in a way contrary to what God has required. Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commandeth it not? We see that God ordains all things. No one can speak and make events go contrary to God's commands. Out of the Lord's mouth, we see his decrees concerning both evil and good. Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Isn't that true? This is what Job says to his, his wife. God dispenses all things. God dispenses that which is good, and God dispenses that which we consider evil. Those of us who understand what Paul says in Romans 8:28 that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called, called according to his purpose, understand that ultimately God's purpose is nothing but good because he is the all-good God. But the all-good God is the sovereign God, and he's a sovereign God over a fallen world, and this means he uses evil for good purposes. Our sovereign God uses evil for good purposes. And this is something, this is a truth, that is right at the center of our faith, and no Christian can deny it. If a Christian says, well, I don't believe that God draws straight with crooked lines, as you might want to put it. I don't believe that God accomplishes good by using evil or sin. I, I would ask you, many of you ladies have, a little, have little pieces of jewelry, necklaces, and you have a cross that, that is on your, uh, on your neck. And what does this cross mean? It's like a noose or a little electric chair. It's a little instrument of torture. The Romans devised this way of killing a man slowly, oftentimes over the course of days. And why do you wear that cross? Why do we put it on the top of churches? What, What is the symbol of the cross? It's the ultimate symbol that God draws straight with crooked lines, and in the most grotesque murder that was ever committed, we see the salvation of the world. How can God do that? Well, he can do this because he's the most high God. Out of, the mo- out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Doesn't God ordain everything? And because God is good, when he or- whatever he ordains is for his good purpose. This being the case, why should any mortal complain when he receives punishment for his sins? No matter what happens, we have to understand this whatever happens is ultimately right there's no fundamental or ultimate injustice anywhere god governs the world rightly as abraham says shall, shall not the judge of the whole earth do right god is the judge of the whole earth everything he does by definition is righteous by definition is good so why should any of us set ourselves up as though we are somehow above it well i, I know and, and we complain about all sorts of we complain about it raining on our picnic. We complain about a little dent in the door of our car. We, com- we complain about all sorts of things and we complain and we murmur and we grumble because we believe that although God's administering justice out there elsewhere in the world, somehow in this case, in this instance, he made a mistake and I'm getting worse than I deserve. But we have to settle it in our minds. None of us ever got worse than we deserve. None of us ever has received any kind of ultimate injustice. Why should any man complain for the punishment of his sins? Rather than assuming that the decrees of heaven are random and inscrutable, such a man is commanded to search out and test his own ways so that he might repent rightly. Notice what it says, why should a man complain for the punishment of his sins? This is assuming that evil and good are coming down the road to us. Things that we would consider calamitous, things that we would consider blessings, things that we would consider minor irritations, things that we would consider minor blessings, all of these things come into our lives. When they come into our lives, what are we told to do? Well, we're told first not to complain. Why should any living man complain when he's receiving chastisement for his sins? And then it says, let us search and test our ways. Let us search and try our ways in order to repent rightly, in order to turn again to the Lord. The end result is the right worship of God, which we see in the last sentence. The right worship of God is our hearts lifted up before God with both hands. We offer up our hearts, everything that we are, the center of our being, we offer it up to God. A number of uh, weeks ago, our Presbytery, the Confederation of Reformed Evangelicals, uh, approved a memorial saying that the 9-11 attacks and the things surrounding it were in part a judgment from God for our idolatry, our polytheism, the way America has been trying to live without reference to God. And some people objected to this because they said, you're setting yourself up as a prophet. You're, you're, you're claiming to know the mind of God for this particular event. And I don't, I'm not sure that you can speak for God. You're not Isaiah. You're not Jeremiah. How can you say that that plane flew into that skyscraper and this plane flew into the other one because you know the mind of God? Well, we're not peering into the mind of God. We're not looking into the secret things. We, we want to look at what is revealed and how the Bible tells us to interpret the world around us. And that's what we're considering here. Because if we get no feedback from the world, if we get no direction from the world, then we can't really understand which way we are to go. There are two error, errors in all of this. As we consider covenantal cause and effect, blessings and curses, as we consider covenantal cause and effects, uh, effect, we have to guard ourselves against two mistakes. The first is the error of presumption, where someone takes it upon himself to declare what was in the mind of God for every little thing. You know the, um, those tests that you took back in grade school where you have two columns and you had to draw a line from one item in the column to another, uh, a corresponding item in the opposing column. And there are some people who believe that they have the insight and the wisdom to draw a line from everything that happens down to, uh, down to the last little gnat's eyebrow, and they can draw it across to some decree in the mind of God and say, oh, this is what God was doing. In other words, Murphy got a flat tire today because three days prior he'd been cross with his wife. Right, so he'd been cross with his wife. That's a sin. This is a bad thing that just happened. And so I'm just going to link uh, this with that, and I'm just going to do it as it suits me. This is the error of presumption. The person who does this is claiming to know more than he can actually know. The opposite error is one that appears at first glance to be very humble, as I mentioned before. And this is the person who says, we know that God has ordained all things, but we can never draw any conclusions about why he has ordained anything unless we are claiming the gift of prophecy. If we are claiming that we have an inside track, and God has told us expressly that this has happened because of that, then we can speak, but since we in the Reformed world would say the gift of prophecy ceased in the first century, and you can't talk about it unless you're a prophet, and you can't be a prophet, that means the world is uninterpretable. That means the world cannot be deciphered. Nothing that happens to you can be understood. And if that's the case, you don't even have the authority to bow your head at dinner tonight and thank the Lord for the food. Because you don't know if it's a blessing. Maybe God's just fattening us up for the day of slaughter. Well, might mightn't he be? <laughs> You know, he he fattens some people up for the day of slaughter, and he he blesses other people with food and good drink, and and how do we know? How can you claim to know that this is a blessing? You're not a prophet. How can you speak for God and say that God put this food on this table in this household for a blessing unless you have the gift of prophecy? Well, you see that there's more to it than that. There's a certain wooden approach to, to these things that, that I think twists the scripture all around. We want to make sure that we respond to the world around us with wisdom, and we have to understand the nature of blessings and curses as we do so. So the former error, the first error, overspecifies, and the latter error underspecifies. Now the former error can be a nuisance. People who overspecify can be a nuisance. The reason your bicycle tire went flat is because I just saw a. a furrowed look on your face and you were probably worried. And they can, they can annoy you. The problem with these annoying people is that they're not around. This particular error is not a common one. There have been periods in church history where it has been fairly common, but our era is not one of them. In our era, we tend to assume that everything is inscrutable. There are some people who assign a meaning to everything willy-nilly, but, and, and that can be a nuisance but it has not stumbled as nearly as many people as the opposite error has. Far too many Christians today imitate the Scottish philosopher David Hume who decided that because he could not see causation it wasn't there. In other words David Hume was to illustrate you're looking at a pool table and someone hits the ball into the corner pocket and David Hume said well this ball hit that ball and I know that the, the contact happened prior to the other ball going into the corner pocket, but I didn't see any causation there. there was a, You can't identify causation. All I know is that one event happened in front of the other one, that A preceded B, but I cannot say that A caused B because I cannot see or weigh or identify or look at under a microscope the causation of it. I can't see the causation, and so the whole thing is just a grand mystery to me. This kind of radical skepticism about cause and effect uh, should indicate to you uh, what a wonderful pursuit philosophy can be in the first place. (laughs) People think about this sort of thing. How do you know that this ball caused that? Well thank you very much. Um, The problem is we do need to study philosophy because these sorts of errors get afoot and they get out into the world and then people start committing the same error in other areas and christians have done the same thing when they look at covenantal cause and effect we are humean in our understanding of covenantal blessings we say well all i can say is that this uh, particular event happened in my life prior to that particular event in my life, but I cannot say anything about whether it's a blessing or a curse or what caused what. I don't know anything and I'm just gonna wait till I die to go to heaven and then God can sort it all out for me. The problem here is that this doesn't give you any feedback now on how to live. Scripture teaches us that God expects us to understand the world around us. This is just another way of saying that we are called to interpret the good things and the bad things I have good and bad in quotation marks there we're called to interpret the good things the things that we would ordinarily consider a blessing and the bad things things that we we'd ordinarily consider not a blessing we're to interpret all of this in terms of the covenantal blessings and chastisements and we're called to modify our behavior accordingly now we're not to do this woodenly This is very important because what we do is we, uh, Martin Luther once compared the human race to a drunk who falls off the left side of the horse. And so the next time, in order to be balanced, he falls off the right side to keep things equal. We we veer into this error and then we veer into that error. An example of wooden covenantal understanding, we have a couple of examples in Scripture. Turn to the book of Job for a moment. Job chapter 42. This is at the end of the book. You recall that, that Job was a very prosperous man. He was greatly blessed. And then everything came unglued. Everything fell apart. He lost all his wealth. He lost um, the trust of his wife. He lost his children. He, he lost everything. And then he lost his health. And he was uh, sitting on the dust heap. Wanting to scrape his swords, sores, and he was just brought as low as a man can be brought. Everything came unglued. And then three friends showed up. And the three friends showed up and said, woodenly, "Job, this would not have happened had you not sinned. This would not have happened had you not sinned. Now you need to confess your sin. What was it? And the whole book is filled with the discussion between Job and his three friends and then Elihu the fourth comes in and then at the end of the book God comes in and he speaks to all of them and when he speaks to all of them notice what he says in chapter 42 verse 7 and it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. Job said I didn't do anything. And I'm not going to confess a sin I didn't commit. I didn't do anything. Now, in the course of the book, there are some things that Job Job drifts a little bit off the point, and God, Elihu rebukes him, and then God rebukes him out of the whirlwind, and God shuts Job up. But on the fundamental point at issue between Job and his friends, Job was right, and his friends were wrong. And this is because the, the friends had this automatic uh, response. Something bad happens, and ten minutes after you, you were in a good situation, then something bad happens, and ten minutes later, I'm pronouncing on the meaning of this. And I'm going to say, automatically, this is, you, you, had to, you had to have sinned. This is the kind of wooden application of covenantal, uh, a wooden interpretation of covenant blessings and curses that gives that kind of interpretation a bad name. When you apply this understanding, if you interpret God's blessings and curses in a ham-handed way, it gives it it a bad name, and then people overreact, and then they say, well, you can't say anything about what God is doing in the world. Turn to uh, John chapter 9. The Gospel of John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, verse 2, I'll I'll begin reading at verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, He saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground. And he anointed the eyes of the the blind man with clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Notice in verse 1, as Jesus passed by, his disciples are walking with him. Jesus is walking down the street and his disciples are walking down the street with him. And as they pass by, they see a blind man. He's right there. Now, the disciples then say, Lord, Lord and they tap him on the shoulder. We've seen this blind man here. We've extensively researched this. And we've narrowed it down to two possibilities. This man sinned or his parents sinned. Which one is it? His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We've narrowed it down after exhaustive theological research. We've decided that this man is a sinner or his parents. And Jesus said, well, actually, you mistake the whole point. His blindness is a blessing. His blindness is a blessing. Why was he born blind? He was, he, he, this man didn't sin, and his parents didn't sin, but he was born blind, but that the works of God should be, ma- should be made manifest in him. This man not only got his sight back, this man has been seeing in heaven for thousands of years already, but this man also is recorded in God's uh, God's Holy Word as an example of God's kindness to people who are born into this fallen world. This was a blessing. You see how the disciples fell into the same mistake that Job's friends fell into. They thought they could just sort of automatically pronounce on whether it was a blessing or a curse, and if it was a curse, uh, why, uh, why it had to have been a curse, and who sinned to bring the curse down upon them. We are called to make assessments about blessings and curses, but we are called to do so in wisdom we are called to make assessments we're, we're supposed to understand what's happening in our lives and we're supposed to do it with all wisdom without nerve endings and without the pain and the pleasure that they bring to us we would all quickly destroy ourselves just think what would happen if you never got any negative feedback from your fingers if your fingers were permanently completely and totally well i won't say numb because let's say you could you could feel with them so you could pick things up, but let 's say you'd never not, never felt any pain you'd batter yourself to death in short order you You would not be able to make modify your behavior because you 're not receiving feedback from the world in order to live prudently with our bodies. we need feedback from the environment which tells us what is harmful and what is not in the same way, there is such a thing as covenant feedback in the same way there 's such a thing as covenant pain covenant pleasure. And, and our bodies give us a good example of this. There are things that are painful and bad for you. Sticking your hand in a fire, for example. That's painful and it's bad. It's not smart. Don't, don't do that. Your body will give you negative feedback and your body will say, this hurts. Stop doing it. But there are also... And as physical therapists will tell you, there are also many things that are good for you and are exactly what you need to do and they're very very painful. And the doctor says no no don't stick your hand in the fire, that's a bad deal. It's painful your body's trying to tell you something. And then he puts you in a regime of physical therapy and, and you're sweating bullets and, you're saying, and you say to the doctor isn't my body trying to tell me something now? And he says, uh, yes, your body's trying to tell you something, but I'm telling you in this instance to ignore your body because this is what you need to do. You need to persevere through this painful therapy. So consequently, we get get, uh, physical feedback from the world through our bodies, but it's not automatically the case that all pain is bad and that all pleasure is good. There are things that are very pleasurable that will destroy you. There are things that are very pleasurable that will destroy you. Crack cocaine is pleasurable. People don't do it because it gives them uh, 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 an evil feeling from the moment they take it. No, it's very pleasurable. There are ways to put yourself in a state of ecstasy that will destroy you. There are also things that are very painful that are your life. There are things that are painful that are going to destroy you. And you see the need for wisdom. It's the same with covenant feedback. Do so more and more does come in the form of covenant blessings, but these blessings are defined not simply by pleasure, but by what the Word describes as a covenant blessing. In the same way, knock that off comes in the form of covenant chastisement and admonition not defined by our experience of pain and pleasure, but defined by how the Word of God describes this kind of thing. And we're supposed to look at the Word of God and look at what happened in our life and to interpret our life in the light of the Word. And so consequently, we are told, in effect, and there are countless ways the Bible does this, we are told to look at an ant scurrying across the sidewalk and we're told to learn something. Consider the ant sluggard, consider the ant and be wise learn wisdom from insects god has embedded wisdom everywhere and the, and the wise man reads the universe he reads the word of god and he reads the world around him in the light of the word of god and as he does this he learns what is godly pain and what is godly pleasure and what is ungodly pain and what is ungodly pleasure and he learns to interpret and distinguish when we walk by the, the house of a sluggard and we see that the, the lawn hasn't been mowed for the, a couple of summers and we, we, the, the grass is chest high and the roof is falling apart. The Bible says you're supposed to look at that and you're supposed to learn, consider, reflect on your own ways. We can't take any of this and tie it all up and say, have one rule that fits every situation. Sometimes it really is simple. Right? If, you, if you take a, a covenant hammer and hit yourself on the head, you're going to have a covenant lump. Right? And, the, and the covenant lump is telling you don't do that. Right? That's a foolish thing to do. So sometimes you, see, you can draw the line straight across. Sometimes you can say, this is the result of that. Other times you have to say, well, it's more, it's more complicated than that. In Galatians chapter 6, if you turn there, Verses 7 through 9, Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Be not deceived. This is very important. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Here's the fundamental principle. God has structured the world in such a way that you reap what you sow. And you don't reap what you sow at the last judgment merely. At the last judgment only. That's included, obviously, as we we see in verse 8. If you sow to the flesh, you, you shall of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you shall of the Spirit rea- uh, reap life everlasting. So, everlasting life in heaven is part of the harvest. But it's not the case that the harvest begins at the last judgment. We are supposed to understand and interpret our lives here and now in our marriages, in our business in how we speak to our children. We are supposed to look at what happens, we are supposed to see what we are doing, and we're supposed to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's Word, and we are supposed to see that I must change this. Because if I don't change this, then this bad thing is going to happen. God tells us to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And He doesn't tell us that bringing up your children is like spinning a roulette wheel. He doesn't say, you're, you're, we're not supposed to say, oh, it's who can tell? You just do your best. You take them to Sunday school and then hope for the best. That's not what he tells us to do. He tells us to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All fathers, all husbands, are to be providers for their family. Provision, the word provide, comes from two Latin words, which mean basically to see beforehand. Wider, uh to see, and, be, and the... And the Pro means to see beforehand. So a godly husband, a godly father is called to anticipate. In other words, I see my son disobeying me. He's two years old and I see what he's doing right now. And I am required by God to see what that sin looks like when it matures for 20 years. When that sin is unchecked, when that sin is unaddressed, I'm required to look at this immature form of it and see the mature form of it and I'm required to take corrective action now. But of course, if the world's inscrutable, how can you do that? If you, how, how can you tell the difference between a harmless little um, temper tantrum, a two-year-old falling over and not even crying that much, but just collapsing when you told him to do something? How can you tell the difference between a little harmless action like that and deadly grief for your family if unaddressed. How do you tell the difference? You look at the Word of God, you pray for wisdom, and you apply God's Word in all wisdom to the circumstances that you see around you. The principle is fixed. Don't be deceived. The world of cause and effect is established by God. And the cause and effect is you reap what you sow. The simplistics say, oh, if God says you reap what you sow, that means that if you sow, then you reap ten minutes later. You're like the first grader, you know, the planting the bean in the egg carton project. And they, and they plant the bean and they dig it up every ten minutes to see how it's doing. I, I, I plant it and it doesn't do very well as it turns out because you kept digging it up. I planted it and, and I've been taught by my teacher that if you plant things, they grow. God's not mocked. You, you reap what you sow. And so there are people who say, well, I did the right thing. I did the right thing, and then I waited around for fifteen minutes, and God didn 't pour out heavenly blessings upon me because they take this uh, this organic world of plowing, preparing the soil, planting, praying, wait, having the rain come down, and reaping in due season instead of instead of thinking of it in organic agrarian uh, pattern according to an uh, organic agrarian pattern, we think of it as modern convenience store type Christians. We think that the world's a vending machine. God is not mocked. Whatever quarter you put in, you get your product within three seconds. You pull the knob and then it's supposed to be there. And so you, you, you planted, you sowed, and then where, where's your Coke? You planted, you d- where, where are your M&Ms? And I want them now. Uh, God's not mocked. Don't be deceived. I want a direct cause and effect relationship. Well, no, it's not like that. It's like farming. It's not like operating a vending machine. It's like farming. But there are other people who say, "Uh, these vending machine people have it all wrong. There is no way to figure out how God runs the world at all. You can plow, doesn't make any difference. You can plant, doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter what you plant, Doesn't doesn't matter whether you work, doesn't matter at all. Doesn't matter if you look for the return or the harvest now, or if you look for the harvest later. It doesn't matter, because it's all going to come out haphazardly, as the sovereign, inscrutable God has decreed. That is just as foolish. Be wise. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and sometimes you win the lottery. Right? That's the way it goes. And, and when a little uh, a sluggard who went down to the, you know, got up at 11 o'clock in the morning and went down to the 7 to get breakfast and he, and he bought a lottery ticket when he was down there and all of a sudden he's a millionaire and then he finds himself on CNN and uh, uh, look at this and I got a million dollars and God's rewarding me for my diligence and inherent virtue. And some people say, wow, wow. Well, no, consider this organically. Think like farmers, right? There is coherence between what you plant and what you reap in due time. There is a connection. The world makes sense. Many of you are sowing in your families destructive seed. You are sowing rebellion in your children. Or you are sowing marital problems down the road. And you're sowing it, and you're going. It's going to uh, be what you reap, and and you can't fix that by hearing a message like this and going to your wife afterwards and say, "I'm not doing that, am I?" And have her say, "No," and then think in in her head, "Yes, you are," but I can, I'm not going to tell you about it because you're that way. Because whenever we try to talk, you you turn into a world-class jerk. So I'm not going to talk about it, and I'll just go along. And then 10 years later, the whole thing blows up, and the husband thinks he's vindicated. He doesn't think that he's reaping what he's sown. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. Now, this is a, it should be a terrifying word to sinners, because all of us know that what we sow in our own effort is nothing but sin. And we say, well, how, how can anybody be saved then? If, if God is not mocked and you reap what you sow, how can anybody be saved? Notice verse 8, he that soweth to the flesh shall reap, of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap everlasting life, life everlasting. In other words, it's possible in this fallen world for us to sow the right seed by faith. This is possible for us to do, and it's only possible by God's grace. It's only possible because He's brought us into covenant with Him, and He's explained the terms of the covenant to us. He's given us His Word. So, when we bow our heads to say grace, how do we know to thank God for the food? How do we know that He's not fattening us for slaughter? How do we know that this is good? When we thank the Lord for for wonderful events, when we thank the Lord for weddings, when we grieve at funerals, when we uh, thank the Lord for the food, when we uh, look at all, and God gives us a great financial blessing, how do you know whether whether to say thank, thank you or panic and run from it? How do you know what to do? We are to live by faith from first to last. First if you want to live biblically if you want to think about this biblically reject short-term thinking reject short-term thinking in the passage from galatians that we considered a moment ago we saw that the phrase in due season was there in verse nine and let us not be weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap if we faint not you have the same kind of thing in hebrews chapter twelve if you if you flip over to that passage the same sort of exhortation. He says in verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. The wise man Receive some things that are just, it's just plain old good. This, is food, this food is good. My wife is a great cook, and, and our family is together. And we celebrate, and our relationships are good. And this is good. And the, the wine is rich, and the food is hot, and the glazed rolls are especially good. And everything about this is good. And, and we bow our heads, and we, and we thank God. Why? Because it's good. And then there are other things that come into our lives that are a trial. They, they throw our homes into turmoil and by faith we should be able to say no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous afterward it yields the fruit of an upright life upright life god breaks up the fallow ground when god prepares your heart for planting his crop sometimes he's got to get rocks out of there sometimes pretty big rocks and sometimes the plow hurts and sometimes this sort of thing is a difficulty but it's a blessing and we are to thank Him for it, just as we thank Him for the other blessing. And we're to, we are to interpret, in the long run, all, of such, all such things as blessings. We have to reject short-term thinking. Afterward, God's discipline yields the peaceful, peaceable fruit of righteousness. There are people who say that short-term, it's short-term or nothing. If I don't see immediate results, if I don't have a vending machine God, then I'm not going to learn wisdom. And the response should be, I dare say, you won't. If you you continue to pursue it that way, you won't learn wisdom if you think God is a vending machine. But then there are people who say, in order to not be that kind of a fool, I have to disconnect God's character and God's promises and God's word from every aspect of my life. And, I, and because it's hard work to try to sort out what's going on in my life, I'm going to just give up in despair and say, I'm just going to wait till I get to heaven. That is just as foolish. So th- these, these two errors agree that it's short-term thinking or nothing. One side says, well, it'll be short-term thinking then. The other side says, it'll be nothing. But they both agree that it's short-term thinking or nothing. Rather, we should be covenant farmers. We should be covenant agrarians. We should know that there's a connection between how we plow, how we plant, and what we harvest. But the world is a complicated place. And we don't have to run it. We don't have to make the seed grow. We can plant and water, but God gives the increase, as Paul says, in another another place. How strange is it that we can put little bits of uh, matter in the ground and get food? How strange is that? How strange is it that God turns water into wine all the time? Not just to Cana, but all the time. He does it slower than he did 2,000 years ago. The water has to come out of the sky and into the dirt and run through this plant and then into a little globule called a grape. But he turns water into wine, and then we have to mash it up, and then we have to do other things and put it in bottles. But God's turning water into wine all the time. We have to understand it organically, and we cannot Adopt a rationalistic, mechanical approach to the blessings of God. A number of years ago, I heard about someone who had heard a, wealth and, a health and wealth gospel guy who was preaching, if you give, if you, give, uh, if you tithe then you're, to God, then you're going to get back all sorts of money. And so he, get, he tithed to the church and waited a certain amount of time. When we didn't get the money back, he sued the church for being a defective vending machine. That kind of thinking is unhappily present and we have to reject it. It's short-term thinking. And then the other side of it is short-term thinking or nothing. And they say, give up on trying to interpret anything in your life. Secondly, reject simplistic thinking. Do not do what Job's friends did. Those who taunted Jesus on the cross were three days off in their calculations. Don't be hasty to assign uh, as these people. Well, God's obviously displeased with that man. Cursed is every man who's hung on a tree. He's hung on a tree. Look at that. And they taunted him. You saved others. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. Then we'll believe. They taunted him. But they taunted him three days early. And that kind of short-term thinking, that kind of taunting, doesn't wise up even four days later. God's purpose god's way god's will god's man god's christ are all vindicated in this world in this life and when we are vindicated in this world and in this life it's just a small foretaste of the glorious vindication that is going to happen at the last judgment do not assume that the only vindication of god's people and god's promises and god's word are in the next life jesus is very explicit uh, he says, in this life you will receive many blessings, and in the age to come, eternal life. God vindicates His people here and now. And you should want to live under His blessings in your business, in your family, in your child-rearing, in everything that you set your hand to. And you want God to vindicate you in all of these things, and you want to live under His blessings, knowing that they are His blessings. You need to, and you need to know this by faith. Not faith in your insight, but faith in the Word. As you look at the Word and you, and you receive from God the right heart attitude that enables you to see it this way. So do not do what Job's friends do, did. Don't do what the disciples did when they point at some misfortune. Oh, this person got sick and they're, they're in the hospital. Therefore, they must have sinned. Don't be wooden. At the same time, don't assume, well, they're in the hospital, it must not have been because of sin. No, it might have been because of sin. If you take a little covenant hatchet and chop off your covenant fingers, you're going to be fingerless as a covenant curse. It's a judgment on your folly. There are people who say, well, uh, Christian liberty gives me the right to smoke three packs a day and I, I'm going to get lung cancer and all to the glory of God. Well, suit yourself. But you need to understand that what you're doing—you need to understand that what you're doing is ignoring how God made the world. You, you, what you're trying to do is blind yourself to certain realities that God has embedded in the world. Third, humility brings wisdom. These are not inter, uh, uh, separated categories. All of these are interdependent. Reject sh- short-term thinking. Reject simplistic thinking which is obviously related to short-term thinking short-term thinking is one type of simplistic thinking third humility brings wisdom and wisdom excludes short-term thinking and simplistic thinking wisdom brings further humility rebuke a wise man it says in Proverbs 9 verse 8 rebuke a wise man and he loves you wise men love the world because the world rebukes them all the time Wise men love the world because the world rebukes them all the time. I'm not going to build it that way the next time. I'm not going to do that again. Glory to God. God teaches me all sorts of things. I'm not going to... Uh, and this, this sort of eagerness for correction is the characteristic of a wise man. A fool just sort of stiffens his neck and proceeds on and doesn't want doesn't want to change and because he doesn't want to change he doesn't want to hear anything from anybody or any circumstance that would indicate that he might have to change so this demeanor means that wisdom is sensitive to the messages that are embedded in the world Solomon tells us in countless ways sharpen the axe before you before you chop the wood I wouldn't be surprised to have Solomon tell us to rotate your tires change your oil every three thousand miles Learn from the world. Learn how God built the world. If you are lazy, certain things follow. If you are obstinate, certain things follow. If you are prideful, certain things follow. And what pride does, the the opposite of humility, is what pride does is it refuses to let friends, people close to you, or the world, say anything that might deter you from your chosen path. But a wise person loves to receive a rebuke. If you rebuke him, he loves you. Even if he comes to the conclusion that you may have been wrong in this particular instance, he loves to hear from people who come as a faithful friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs tells us, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. As a pastor, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, Have you talked to so-and-so about this? And they say something to the effect of, I've tried. When I try to bring a rebuke or when I try to bring an exhortation or if I try to, try to bring a warning and I, I see how they talk to their daughter and I see th- this daughter is four years old now and she's, gonna, she's going to be a grief to their heart in 15 years. And I've, I've tried to tell them, but they, they get defensive and they get prickly and they get upset. Why? Because they're being fools. Because they're being covenantally unfaithful at that point. So humility brings wisdom. There are people. I have one dear brother who would say, "Please rebuke me. It's oil, oil to my head. Please tell me." if you see anything and he he wasn't promising to agree with whatever it was I came up with he wasn't promising to just shut his eyes and blindly accept whatever I said but i I knew him to be a wise friend because he said please don't hold back if you see something please tell me the wise you you rebuke a wise man and he loves you you if you come with an admonishment or an exhortation or please watch out for this if someone gets huffy if someone gets prickly if someone gets defensive if someone responds in any form of circling the wagons to protect whatever it is you're questioning that thing that they're that, that thing even if it were innocent at the first the 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 defensive reaction means that it is be, being defended foolishly and and sinfully then fourth thanksgiving sanctifies everything everything that god created is good and it may all be received with thanksgiving, as it says in 1 Timothy 4. If you look there, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Paul says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. What does this tell us? The one who cannot do this is being chastised. If if you put... A a glorious meal in front of a fool and he cannot bring himself to thank God for it then is that food a blessing or a curse? It's a curse. He is being fattened for the day of slaughter. Why? Because he refuses to honor God as God and refuses to give him thanks. Whether or not these things in the world are a blessing or a curse cannot be categorized by us putting them into columns independent of our response to them. In other words, if you say, given the fallen nature of the world, given how these things work, how do we categorize food? Is it a blessing or a curse? Well, it depends. Are you receiving it with thanksgiving? If you're receiving it with thanksgiving, it's a blessing from God for your covenant faithfulness. How about if if a disease strikes you? If you get cancer, what is cancer? A blessing or a curse? Cancer is... Detached from our responses, cancer is part of the enemy. it's part of our fallenness. But, but does that mean that no person who's pleasing to God and, and living before God righteously can get sick and die? where everyone in this room is going to die, we're all going to go to see our Lord and Maker, and we're all going to die of something. What is that something? It says in, it says in the Old Testament, "Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints." These things, if we receive them, no creatures to be rejected, if we accept it with thanksgiving, it's precious to the Lord, and if it's precious to the Lord, it should be precious to us. But the person who cannot give thanks, the person who refuses to give thanks, is the person who's trying to turn this thing into a a covenant curse or chastisement. We are to give thanks for all things, and so this includes our trials. It says in Ephesians 5 20 always and for everything giving thanks always and for everything giving thanks with a heart overflowing and if you're sick if you get a a bonus at the end of the year that you weren't expecting you have additional money give thanks if you come up at the end of the month and it's it's you're short give thanks but consider back to our text in Lamentations 3 are you, are you short at the end of the month because you spent your paycheck up at Worley at the Gambling casino? Consider your ways. If there's something to repent of, repent of it. But having repented of it, then give thanks for the circumstance and the harvest that you're receiving and ask God, that would, ask God to teach you wisdom so that the next crop you get would be a, a, a crop that you can enjoy more directly. The blessings and the curses that come to us are therefore not a puzzle to be solved but rather a gift to be received in all humility and thanksgiving. Let me say that again. The world presents all sorts of things to you, and these things that come to you are not a puzzle to be solved. You don't have to say, oh, this was a sickness, or this was a death in the family, or this was a bonus, or this was a dismissal from a job, or this was a loss of a contract, or this was me seeking the hand of a, a girl and, and she says no, and, and, or, or whatever, whatever it is. You can't say, what category do you put a spurned suit in? What category do you put food in? What category do you put disease in? There's no master list that says, these are the blessings and these are the curses. What we have is a description of two kinds of people. The wise man and the fool. The covenant keeper and the covenant breaker. The person who wants to receive from God everything that he has and wants to understand it in all wisdom. And so when God blesses you, sometimes he blesses you with things that even the pagans can see as a blessing. Other times he blesses you and the world outside cannot comprehend how you are capable of receiving this as a blessing. But remember that we serve a God who saved the world through a murder. Right? Never forget that. We serve a God who saved the world through a murder. How can we then say that something else is beyond his reach to make good, something good out of? How can we say that his promise is not true? And I want to conclude in Romans 8:28. I've referred to it before, but I want to read the surrounding context. Romans 8:28. I'll start at 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, do we? We know by faith. We know, if we know God's covenant document, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God the issue is not whether this disease or this cancer or this paycheck or this job or this woman or this man or these children the issue is not whether these entities in the world can be put in this category or that the issue is whether we are in the category of those that love God and are the called according to his purpose if we are then it's all God's blessing. If we are not, then it's all a curse. And that's, ha- that's how the divide works. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate Them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Everything in your life is contributing to your glorification and you being made like Jesus Christ. There are things you don't, you say, how come, I can't see how this would fit. Trust God, it does. If you say, no, I'm not going to trust God. I don't see how that can fit, and I'm not going to trust God when he says it does. Then you can say, you know, I dare say it doesn't. It doesn't fit. All things do not work together for good for everyone indiscriminately. All things work together for good to them that love God, who trust Him, who humble themselves before Him, who want to be wise, who receive a rebuke from the Word of God, and they love the Word of God because the Word of God rebukes them. Do not be foolish in your homes. Do not be foolish in your businesses. Do not be foolish in your marriages. Do not be foolish with your children. Receive the Word of God bow your neck before him, kneel before him, and say, God, teach me whatever you want me to to learn, whatever you want me to know. God, I am before you. I, I humble myself before you. And you pray this prayer, you and God alone. God, do whatever it takes to humble me before you. Do whatever it takes to make me wise before you. He will, because he keeps his promises.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's talk, Covenantal Cause and Effect, from our audio collection titled, Reformed is Not Enough, Volume 3. Go find that talk and the rest at canonpress.com.